Thank you so much everyone for coming out today and going through the gauntlet of protesters. I do appreciate that. Um, it's probably one of the le not least controversial things that the Show Me Institute does, but it's not very controversial. I'll just put it that way. Um, uh, we have built a website and it is called mostschoolrankings.org. If you haven't had a chance to look at it, you could see it on your phone. It is a little easier to use on a computer. Um, and it is a website that contains performance data and grades and rankings for every school and district in the state. Whoa. And uh, we did put, I keep saying we, but I'm the education staff, so every time I say we, I mean I. So <laughs> I put a lot of time into creating this uh, website, and I think it's pretty cool. We're proud of it. It looks, um, this is kind of the homepage when you go there, it looks like this. We, you know, thought a lot about the user experience and what parents or legislators would mostly want to know. It is, I will say, heavily leans towards just academic um, indicators, test scores, but um, we felt like that was an important thing to do. You can zoom in, you can zoom out, you can look at lists, you can look at the map, you can um, look at Missouri legislative districts on your map, or you can look at school districts on the map. And you can compare up to three schools or three, di three districts. So we tried to make it a very uh, user-friendly experience, and we have a bunch of other things on the screen that I'm going to talk about later. But what I really want to talk about, because I think if you get a chance to look at it, it's pretty self-explanatory, and you can start looking up the schools that you're curious about. But I really want to talk about is since we launched it a month or so ago, and I've talked to folks on the radio and other places, the question I've been getting is why? Why did we do this work? Because um, it's a lot of work to take on for, we're kind of lean and scrappy at the Show Me Institute, and it's a lot of work to take on for a person. And so I kind of, I really want to start uh, there with the why. Um, the Missouri Department of DESE is required to do report cards for every school and district in the state. And my opinion is, and I've written about and I've talked about this quite a bit, my opinion is that um, they are hard to find, hard to understand, and hard to put into context. And I don't think most people realize that these school report cards aren't just a nice service that DESE might offer to the public. They're in fact required by law. And so I'm going to give a, a very brief history lesson here just so we all understand what we're talking about. But you know, the federal government really isn't a player in public education according to the United States Constitution. They don't really have a hand in it. But in 1965, during the Great Society programs and Lyndon Johnson's administration, uh, there was a, an effort that the, that the federal government should get involved in a very narrow way, which is attempting to equalize opportunity for disadvantaged children, specifically. And they passed the Elementary Secondary Education Act. The biggest part of that's called Title I, and that provides money for low-income students, in theory, provides money for low-income students to try to equalize uh, opportunities for those children. And from the very beginning, there was a bargain struck that we'll give the money, but we need to know how the program's doing and how schools are doing from the very beginning. And as a matter of fact, the first uh, big study of it was done in 1968. And it was led by a sociologist named James Coleman, so it's called the Coleman Report. Um, continuously studying how this money is or is not having an impact. And then, um, in the, I would say in the 80s, the early 80s, the Department of Education commissioned another big study called A Nation at Risk. And 
that's the study that um, is known for a couple of things. They said that we were caught up in a rising tide of mediocrity, our public education system, because other countries were just passing us by. And also it said that, it was a pretty short report, like 60 pages, it said that if another country had imposed upon us the system of education we've created for ourselves, we would consider it an act of war. Like they really were pretty strong in their words about their opinion of our public education system. And then there were leaders who, who got behind this idea in the late 80s, early 90s. George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, there was Jeb Bush, there was Lamar Alexander who were like, we want to dig in, we want to really work on this and fix it. And uh, that sort of led to the standards and accountability movement. And just so everyone understands, standards are you set content standards for like, this is what a third grader should learn in math. That's the standard. At the end of the year, you give them a test and you hold them accountable or the teachers or the schools accountable for whether or not those third graders learn those content standards. So standards and accountability starts happening. And, you know, in 2002, it exploded on steroids basically through No Child Left Behind. And all of a sudden, the federal government's saying, here's what you need to do. Everyone has to be proficient by 2014. And, um, you're going to be punished if you don't hit these certain things. Okay, so the last administration, the Trump administration, uh, reauthorized that act to the uh, Every Student Succeeds Act, I'm sorry, ESSA. And what, what has happened now is the responsibility has gone back to the states. You have a lot of flexibility. You have to have a system of standards and accountability, but the federal government's not going to tell you how to do it. However, the bargain remains. DESE gets about, a, I don't know, billion and a half to two billion, and in stimulus times, double that in federal money, okay? But the bargain remains that um, in order to uh, take that money, they have to create report cards for every school and district in the state. And those report cards, this is the guidance that's sent out to every governor uh, with the passage of the act that very clearly states you have to have report cards for every school and district in the state. And I know that this is a little bit uh, blurry, but those report cards, according to this, are supposed to have language that a parent can understand and um, perhaps a person with disabilities can understand and it's supposed to actually be created and designed with um, parent input. So you're really truly supposed to have parent-friendly school report cards and the reason is that parents need this information and um, I have said and I just want to be clear that I I acknowledge that DESE does create school report cards but I don't think that they meet the intention of this law, even if they meet the letter. Just to give you an idea, this is what a DESE school report card looks like. And they are hard to find. And I'm old, and I have a problem with that font. I mean, they're hard to just physically read for me. And they, uh, you know, once you find the school and district you're looking for, if you printed this, it's 14 pages of this, basically. And recently, this disclaimer was added that says, the data on these school report cards may not match the rest of the data on the website. Um, like they update data on the website, but they don't update the school report cards. So whatever that means. But also as a parent, or just as a person, I don't know what an asterisk means, you know? And there's, that's not explained here. When you get to the, um, I don't expect you to read this. When you get down to the school performance information, it's in here, but it has acronyms like LND and MAPA. And it's just, as a parent, you want to know if your child's going to a decent school or is it getting better or getting worse, and you just want that information. Uh, they do summarize the performance information down here, but 
again, I just make, I'm belaboring this point. This is a Missouri school report card, okay? Just as a contrast, this is an Illinois school report card. There are lots of states that do good report cards, by the way. Um, the Department of Education did a hackathon to help states design the report cards. The Foundation for Excellence in Education did a whole series, a project on good report cards, design-wise. But I think you kind of know it when you see it, right? Here's their proficiency rates. Here's their student de demographics. They compare the school to the district and the state. Desi's does not. You don't know if 40% proficient is high or low or what. Um, Oregon has great ones. Virginia has good ones. North Carolina's. And lots of them have letter grades. Just to be clear, lots of states use letter grades. Florida started using letter grades on their school in the mid-90s. It's been 25 years that they've had letter grades. Uh, Florida, as soon as they started assigning letter grades to school, also created a program that said a child doesn't have to stay in an F school for more than a year or a D school for more than two years in a row. So they also gave people an out once they did letter grades, and that's accountability. That's true accountability, in my opinion. So there are good report cards out there. I just don't think we have them. So uh, we decided to make them, basically. We decided to take them on. And since, I, since the release of the report cards, I've talked to lots of folks about them. And people have given me helpful suggestions on things that could be added or things that could be done differently. I haven't heard from anyone yet, uh, I hope I do, from Desi. I mean, I would love them to tell me that these are not done well and they could be better and that Desi's going to do them. It is their job. We just did it. We shouldn't be doing this. They should be doing this. We did it because they're not. And, but I'm open to any conversation. But let me just sort of explain, based on the description of theirs, what I wanted. I wanted them to be very transparent. I wanted any words that you might not understand to be explained. And I will tell you, there's a glossary on our website. And um, it's at the top, it's at the bottom. So it's easy to find. And then we took the, the definitions and we ran them through, a, I didn't do this, a program to try to get them to like the eighth grade level so that it didn't use words that parents wouldn't understand. Um, the sources, if you click on that, I'm going to go through this in more detail. Every data point on here, you can link to the DESI file where I got it. All I did was download a bunch of DESI files and a couple federal government files and merge them all together on a school ID. That's basically all I've done. But that whole data set is available. You can export it, both the school level and the district level. And I've had a couple people contact me who I don't think are like enormous fans of the Show Me Institute, but they liked just downloading the data and doing their own analysis, and they didn't have to go to 12 different DESI files to try to figure it out. They're all combined into one place. Uh, again, for transparency purposes. And yes, the schools do get a rank, a GPA, and letter grades, but the grading methodology is at the top, and I tried and I would love feedback to make that as transparent as possible. How we calculated them, what constitutes an A, B, C, D, F for each of the metrics, and how many A's there were and how many B's there were, and, and any kind of information we could think of. You can also compare multiple schools. Um, I thought that was important. You can't really do that well on DESI's site. That is a hard thing to do. But I, I think you want to see like, okay, here's my school, but what about the neighborhood school, you know, the, the next neighborhood over, things like that. So. That's what we were going for on ours. So to dig in a little bit, I've already said this, but the glossary, you know, four-year graduation rate. <coughs> I make assumptions that people know acronyms and definitions, and I had people help me decide which words needed to be defined, because I'm like, everyone knows what that is. Well, maybe not. You know, you've got a group of ninth graders, kids come, kids go, and then you've got a bunch of graduates. How do they keep track of that? That's all explained here. So um, 
think we went through and kept picking up more words that we might want to define. Desi has a growth model that's very hard to understand. I tried to make it easier to understand. Um, you're welcome, Desi. I mean, it's very hard to understand. And so we went through and tried to simplify things for folks. As I said, the grading methodology, top and bottom, is nothing hidden here whatsoever. Um, I wanted everyone to understand how we did it. Um, and then the sources, again, these are links. So when you go to the sources, you ought to, you ought to be able to go directly to the DESI file. Some of the links are breaking. Uh, Desi's website, I don't know, but some of the links, I think that they're, they're up to date, but you, you ought to be able to go right to it. So here's what's going to happen if you look at a school on our website. You click on Adair Elementary, which is up north, we're on Kirksville, and the map's up top so you can zoom out and know where you are in the state. I need that for me. I need to know like where I'm looking. And there's a little bit of information about the school, which is um, like the website. I really wanted the rural, urban, suburban town designation. That's a Census Bureau thing, but to me it's very interesting to look at rural schools versus city schools. And some information about the number of kids, whether or not it's on, Desi has two watch lists. One's called Targeted Intervention, one's called Comprehensive Intervention. Those are the lowest 5% of schools in the state. One is for all schools, one's for schools serving low-income students. Um, as a parent, I would really want to know if my child's attending a school on one of those two lists. Those lists are so hard to find, so we do link to them in the sources. But in addition, understanding how a school got on that list is very complicated. It's a complicated weighted formula, which I do explain, and I link you to the DESI thing. But that's important information, I think, for a parent. And there's at least one school district, and I don't want to name it because I might, be, might not have the right one. Um, west of town, where the elementary, the middle, and the high school are all on the watch list. So maybe you think about if you want to live in that community. Like, that's important information to have. So um, that's there. Then some financial data. And then we added legislative district and uh, the legislator's name, which we'll have to update. But we added that, that information. So that's at the top. Then at the bottom, there are the grades. And the, the column that's in color is the school you're looking at. The column next to it in gray is the district in which that school is. And then this column is the state. So you can see your school next to your district next to the state. And um, this is eight of the 10. There's 10 things with grades. Four are based on English language arts scores. And these are just scores on the map test that Missouri gives to all schools every year. And four based on math. Uh, all students, low-income students only, the growth score, which is based on a model that DESI runs that shows the average amount of academic growth at school creates for their students in a year. It's pretty complicated. Somebody here who could explain it better than me. And, um, and I wanted to include growth. Desi considers growth to be like extra credit. And growth is very important for schools who serve disadvantaged populations. While they may have a hard time getting very many kids up to that proficient line, they may be getting at least average growth or better than average growth. And I think they deserve credit for that. At the same time, you might have a very high performing school where kids are coming in high performing and they don't get a year's worth of growth in a year. So that's important information to know too. So you really need those two things. You can't look at one without the other. And this bottom grade, I will say, is called adjusted. And I took all of the data from Missouri schools and districts, and I did a regression model using proficiency versus low-income enrollment. 
and I use that model to then to create a predicted score for every school. It's like not predicted just based on my opinion, it's predicted based on this regression model. And I compared like if the school should have had 35% proficient and it had 30, they missed it. If it had 40, they exceeded it. So that is a way to acknowledge schools who serve highly disadvantaged populations, which is to say, you know, it's a tough situation. You don't want to compare a school in North St. Louis to a Clayton school because they serve different populations. So that is to account for those schools if they are doing a particularly great job. And then the last two, high schools don't have growth scores, only third through eighth grade. So I included ACT, the average ACT composite score, and uh, high school graduation rates. And I will tell you this, I already knew it, the most gamed variable on the whole. You can game high school graduation rates, so a lot of A's and B's on high school graduation rates. Um, for each of those things, we ranked, we just ranked the schools from the highest proficiency rate to the lowest. A bunch of zero proficiencies, they're at the bottom. So just the highest to the lowest, put them in order and assign them a rank. Um, if a school had the same exact number, they shared a rank. That's, I keep saying the golf ranking, but I don't know if anyone's clear on that, but like you share the rank if you have the exact same number. And then the grades, the way we did the grades is um, basically took the whole range of scores. Like for a graduation rate, it's 70% to 100%. That's 30 points, you just break it into Six points, six points, six points, five equal chunks of six points. That's how we did it. We didn't break it into like 20% A's, 20% B's. We, that's a basic way to curve grades. You just take the range. And so if you think about like um, um, proficiency scores, 48% I think of students in 18, 19 were proficient in English. Most schools and districts are right in that 48% area, right? They're sort of bunched around 48%. So you get a lot of C's. And then you have some A's and you have some F's. But doing it that way, and, and by the way, this is on the website. This is on the website. Each of those measures, what's an A, B, C, D, F, and below it is the numbers and the counts. Again, if anyone would like to, and I know that there's some hard feelings around schools getting F's, but if fewer than 17% of your students are proficient in math, it's really hard to justify much higher of a grade for that, right? So exactly what the grades are, so you can see that. And then the, here's how the grades mostly worked out by doing it that way. Um, most of the grades are in the middle. It's a curve. This is English language arts. This is math. Um, a lot of C's. Now this is one thing I just want to take as a quick sidebar. When I talk to intelligent audiences like y'all, people get a little freaked out by C's. Uh, and the GPAs are centered on two, and most people think of twos as being like academic probation. But C is the middle, I think above a C is above average, below a C is below average. Then um, the grade point average is just for each school or district, you could have up to 10 grades and it's just like a typical grade point average. And A is worth four points, and F you don't get any points. So you have a grade point average. Uh, again, happy to discuss the methodology behind any of that. It's, uh, I think it's fair, and if not, it's extremely transparent. So happy to discuss any of that. And so it's been, it's been launched for like a month or so now, and I think we've had over 20,000 page views, maybe more like 25,000. I've had conversations about the methodology with folks, um, uh, people who just want to understand it better, uh, people who have suggestions for how to improve it. Uh, so far, we haven't had any data glitches or anything like that. The website seems to be functioning okay. Um, but now that we've got it launched and more people are using it, for the Show Me Institute, just so you know, we have some 
some next steps that we're going to be taking. Um, I say that we're going to be doing additional analyses. I've looked at this data for a, a year. So I've done plenty of analyses. We'll do more analyses. I'll talk about that in a minute. We're going to kind of dig in on this legislative district data because this is new. Normally, uh, data don't get rolled up by legislative district, but we're doing that. So, and the way we put them into legislative districts was latitude, longitude, like it's the physical location of the school, which legislative districts it's in. So we want to dig in on that a little bit. And then when the, 20, the latest round of data are available from last year, we're going to add them to the website. And of course, we know last year's data are going to be problematic. You know, a lot of kids didn't show up. This is a tough year for a lot of people. Um, but we're going to put them on the website. Not necessarily, I don't know, side by side, but we're going to put them on the website. But I just want to say, like, quick preview of something I'm working on when I say we're going to do additional analyses. I'm very interested in this rural city, suburban town thing. So I've been using the data set to sort of cut high schools into rural city, suburban town and look at the distribution of grades. Um, it's kind of interesting to me because I hear a lot about people really loving the rural schools. And I will say as a preview, we found that the rural elementary middle schools do do pretty well, but the rural high schools do not do as well. So something happens in the middle. I think my hypothesis is like access to you know, teaching staff and resources. A lot of our high schools in the rural areas don't offer calculus or physics or AP or any foreign language other than Spanish. And so it kind of comes out in these grades. Um, so I've been looking at, at these types of things, and this is like ACT scores. You really see it like half of the suburban high schools got A's or B's on ACT scores, and it's somehow the rural, there's a bit of a breakdown at the high school level. So I'm not expecting you to you know, look at these. I know it's hard to read, but this is the type of stuff we're going to be doing. Also looking at some of the spending data compared to grades, um, and there's plenty of stuff that we could be doing with it. But So that's what we've got. I'm happy to take any questions. and. If you want me to walk through the website, I have that up too. Any questions? Yeah, Steve. Have you gotten any feedback from I have not. I mean, until these people showed up, I haven't heard anything. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm serious. Like, you can imagine the day this launched, I'm just like, oh, waiting for the shoe to drop, right? I haven't had, no, not from anybody. I, I talked to a superintendent. Um, he thought his graduation rate was incorrect. In his very small high school, they had uh, nine graduates. He thought he had nine in the starting cohort, but he had 10. And I did confirm it. Uh, by the way, we've, please find me the error, but we've looked at every one of our pages next to every one of Desi's pages. So I did confirm the data that his graduation rate was 90, which caused him to call Desi, which now they're going to try to work it out. So um, in that regard, I think people have looked at it, but I haven't heard. I don't know if they're hoping it goes away or. Yes. Well, this is kind of complex. At least, excuse me, complex to me. Where was all of this ten years, twenty years ago? Like all this pushback. No one was doing this in the early, in the late '90s when St. Louis Public Schools was um, fighting for accreditation. They let all the charter schools, when the AKAs and black sorority wanted to come to a charter school, all black leadership was around. It was like, hey, crashed, right? We let some more come in. And until like, like in the last five years, I would say, I've seen a very big push 
from people that support St. Louis Public Schools. I graduated from St. Louis Public Schools for a fact. And I don't I don't understand. Why do you want why do they want to take an opportunity away? I'm not worried about the rules that charter schools have at the state. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about children having access to an opportunity to thrive that will lead them and their community members into a 21st century workforce that our region and the globe is working on. So like I appreciate this. Mm -hmm. And I put a post on Facebook, people got pissed at me. I told them, I said, I don't know why no black educators should continue to keep saying that we need black educators in black communities, because we got black everything when you go to North County to a certain extent in St. Louis Public Schools. Where's the data change? If this was 1847, when people valued education, yeah. I think, yeah, in 2021, with a ratchet and wild, run the schools and it's a daycare center for educators who do want to make a change, they're babysitting. So I don't understand like all this pushback when you put up the facts. Like, well, I looked at this yeah. St. Louis public schools and North County schools. There were like two schools yeah. that had over a zero percentage or I instead know. of one. And but their overall data wasn't too hot either. So why aren't parents being like going down to the board of education, like they're trying to put a moratorium in place so can no more charter schools or public schools get built. Yep, Normandy's so they, yep. They do anything. Well, let me just say, when I, when we were building this website, we went a little bit back and forth on the grade thing. Should we put grades? No grades. Great. Grades make people feel bad, right? And if you say D's and F's, people will feel bad. But I would say to you that a lot of the parents in North St. Louis, whose kids go to the schools that probably got D's and F's here, they know the school's not very good. It's not a big, uh, you know, news flash that the school's not very good. The problem is that they're stuck in them, right? And so, does not, and matter of fact, one of the flyers from outside says that identifying low-performing schools hurts low-income and black kids because that's who goes to those schools. So, what do you do? Not identify them? I mean, do you just put your head in the sand and? When the latest round of state data came out, the state commissioner said that they wanted to use it as a flashlight, not a hammer, and I know this feels like a hammer, but I'm not trying to hammer. I just want to empower parents to say, if we do this multiple years, how come we're still enough? Like, you know, we're supposed to be getting better here, and I wanted to put the information in the hands of parents, and I am not saying out loud that Desi's trying to hide the information, but they're sure making it hard to find. So. I think theoretically they should have easy to use report cards like other states and put them in backpacks. Like make sure the parents know what's going on in their school and hold people accountable. You know, if you don't, Peter Drucker said, well, you can't fix what you don't measure. So it's like to just put our heads in the sand, Missouri's slipping as a state nationally. Um, we're, we're falling further down the list of states and we know that certain pockets in this state are, are have, some of the schools in the boot heel have been unaccredited forever. As a matter of fact, the one time I got to meet with the Commissioner of Education, I was asking about district accreditation and I said, Ferguson Florissant has 7% of the kids proficient in math, 93% not proficient. And they're fully accredited. So what is the system you're using? Like, you know, your parents know that stuff. And so I appreciate your comment because I'm, I'm the, I'm the one that like, I like to look at my credit score. You gotta get on the scale. You gotta look at your bank balance. Like you have to look at it if you're going to fix it, right? So to not look at it to me is, um, is you know, not a show of courage. So, yes. I really applaud your efforts. Yeah. And I've, I've just used the website a little bit on my phone. The one thing I didn't understand, if you could elaborate a little bit, mm -hmm. is how did, how did you measure 
I'll call it the progress, I'm not sure that's the right word, mm -hmm. but the progress that's being made with the lower achieving students compared to the progress and performance with the higher achieving students. Like there were a lot of school districts where overall they got A grades, but dive in a little further, they were down in the D, sometimes even F range. Could you just, I'm not trying to challenge it, I'm just trying to understand the methodology that mm -hmm. was used to get there. Yeah, so if I understand you correctly, there are some schools that are look pretty good performing for all students, but not so good for low-income students. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And uh, that's important. <laughs> I'm just like, that's important information because uh, and that's kind of came out of No Child Left Behind, but um, there was a belief that uh, certain groups were being hidden. And if you hide this group's performance, then you're not being held accountable for that group's performance. So during No Child Left Behind, they said you got to report for all students, but you can't get away with that. You got to report for these subgroups of students, race, income, English language learners, students with disabilities, and we need to look at it. Okay, so now we're back to the flexible period. And what Missouri has chosen to do, which I don't think is a good idea, is create something they call a super subgroup and take all the disadvantaged groups, supposedly disadvantaged groups, and just lump them into one, right? So now you can't really tell how low income students. Now, technically, it is on the report card in that bottom part. But for their, for their um, rating system, they lump all those kids into one group. So now you've kind of lost them. You don't know, like, you know, you might be killing it with uh, in how you educate low-income students, but not doing so well with students with disability. You can't equate the two. You need to look at them separately. So what we decided to do, and I will tell you, I know that people would like other measures up here, like race and uh, English language learners. Uh, you know, we didn't have Jesse's budget. We didn't have any federal stimulus dollars coming in on this project. So I think we did a really good job for what we had, but we picked low-income because that, um, is a good measure in Missouri of a school's performance with disadvantaged students. Which I'm, well, I won't bore you with math, but it's a good measure. The, the second part was, what's the metric? In other words, what, 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 is, what is measured and how, how the low income group is measured? Oh, okay. So, um, is it, is it, specifically, is it progress or achievement? So there's both. So right here is the growth grade. So we have these, this is the growth score, and that is a measure of progress. And all kids are in there, and it's a measure of how they do from fall to spring, and it's compared to the state average, and it's a model that uh, the University of Missouri runs for DESE every year. So that is a measure of progress. And then these are measures of uh, proficiency. Okay. So, and then here's the proficiency just for low-income students. And this particular school, 67% of the low-income students scored proficient or higher, so they get an A. Um, so we have both uh, proficiency and growth in there, and um, but it, I, so I find that stuff really interesting too. I've looked at schools that do really well overall, but don't do well with certain subgroups because, you know, that's information you want to have, and I want to ask them why. You know what I mean? Like maybe you need to pay more attention, even if you don't have very many low-income students, you should be maybe doing a better job with them. But at one point, this has gone through a bunch of iterations. You can well imagine when you build a website, right? But at one point, we did the gap between all uh, non-low-income and low-income, and that wasn't as informative, I don't think, as just showing low-income scores. So. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Howard. 
so <clears throat> first I'll say I really, really like Doug and digging into the website. Thank you. Maps, data, this is great. So I'm going to complain. Fine. Uh, so I think that you're, so you're, you're measuring, you're, when you're doing the letter grades, you're basing it on the average, right? The average is always a C, right? So when schools improve, say all the schools improve over time, you're still going to have the average being C. So we're going to use these cut these scores. Maps. We're going to use these cut scores okay. going forward. So in other words, what is a C this year will also be a C next year. So we're not going to keep readjusting. Oh, so you're, this is a base. But then there's COVID, right? So then it's going to be kind of tricky to say 2018-19, that's the base, and we're going to measure against 2018-19. So I guess I need to look at the numbers to see. Like, oh, it's just going to be all Ds and Fs, you know? Oh. <laughs> Problem solved. Yes. Either one. I'll do both. On every state uses a different assessment. We have the math, and some states' assessments are much better than others. And I applaud what you've done here. Thank you. Based, um, you know, in terms of looking at scores. Well, do you have any opinion on the quality of the mm -hmm. math uh, of the math mm -hmm. test? I have real concerns in the past several years ago, as I saw changes that were made and pushing and teaching to the test. And yeah. I mean, I can't pretend to have expertise on that. However, um, there is one national assessment that's called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, and they give that to every state. They give it to a representative sample of students. And so you can compare between states. It's also called the nation's report card. And uh, every time that NAEP scores come out, uh, there's a group called the American Institute for Research, which um, then compares those to state test scores. So. They, if it's proficient in Missouri, where is it on the NAEP scale kind of thing. And Missouri is, I think, bottom half on that in terms of its quality compared to NAEP. It's like, can you be proficient in Missouri and not proficient in NAEP? You can. Um, and between, uh, I think it was 2015 and 2017, I'm not positive, but after all the Common Core hoopla and it all died down, um, a bunch of states redid their standards a bunch of states redid their standards for Common Core, and then they threw those out, and then they redid their standards. And um, there was, between two NAEP um, administrations, there was a map that showed the states that made their uh, content standards harder, and ones that made them easier. And every state in the country was green for made them harder, except for one state on the whole map. Missouri made theirs easier. So, um, you know, that's, that's what I have on that. I, you know, I'm not going to pretend to know, like, what's a great test. A lot of states also, and Missouri, use uh, NWEA. And, you know, Pearson did the Common Core test, and they're still doing all the tests. Uh, not going to get into it. But, but yeah, I, I would say <coughs> it's not, um, we're not setting the benchmark really high. In addition, um, when the 18-19 scores came out, which is the last year we have school and district data for, I heard the, somebody on the State Board of Education saying, you know, they're pretty low. The overall proficiency rate's about 42% in math that year and 48% in reading. We can't get to halfway on either. He said, well, maybe we should go down and look at just basic and not proficient, you know, and that will make everything look better, <laughs> which I'll tell you, it's defined here, but proficient is mastery of the subject matter, basic is partial mastery, and below basic is minimal mastery. 
So I don't really want to think we want to go from mastery to partial mastery and use that as our as our benchmark, right? So, um, you know, I have pl plenty of complaints. And gentlemen, right behind, yes. Yeah, I, <coughs> I hope I'm wrong, but I'm okay. afraid the biggest long-term impact of this whole COVID pandemic is going to be on the kids mm -hmm. who fell behind mm -hmm. because they weren't able to be in school. That's right. They were trying, some were trying to learn online, but you know, it's a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> well, but um, again, um, is this going to help me show that those schools that stayed open did better? Because mm -hmm. I tried to do some stuff last. I could have. Well, this is time. before the pandemic. This is pre-pandemic. So, so this is this does not include the latest. That they're not available. In so years, I thought they, they were available September. in September. They put out the state level in September. They are required by law to release the district and school level by December 31st. And the commissioner has committed to doing that, but they are not released yet. Okay. So then, yes, if it looked exactly like this, which we probably will make it look better, the 2021 data would be on here, and then you could match that to, uh, to the 19 and to the learning environment. And I will tell you, if you looked at the state data that came out, they broke it out by learning environment, like fully in-person, hybrid, uh, then like a, a, there's a third that's like a mixed schedule and then fully virtual. And the fully virtual numbers are a disaster. They are terrible. And, and the kids had to go to the school to take the test on a computer. So... I'm guessing the lowest performers aren't even in the numbers. So yeah, it's, and I agree with you, there is research from the last pandemic in 1918 that shows that those kids never caught up, like in terms of lifetime educational attainment and median earnings. There's, we're at big risk here. Well, again, trying to do some comparisons, the only thing I've been able to find is a, is a school that says it's, like you say, it's virtual, hybrid, or, or totally you know, in person. You're going to need to know what exactly what that hybrid is before you or, or do you just look at the two extremes? Um, I think Desi has that data on their website, and they define hybrid and the the, the mixed schedule one. Um, that's all you're going to really have to go on. But what you're not going to, I mean, I'm also interested in the 20, uh, this school year, 21-22, because kids are there and then home and then there and then home, and then what do you call that? You know what I mean? It's like... You're in person, then you're quarantining, then you're in person, then you're quarantining. And kids are missing a bunch of school this year. Well, in our so. county, we had about 80% of the kids attempt to attend in person. Oh, good. Actually, there were problems with that. Our people really worked hard to keep the kids in school. And I, you're saying um, we'll need to wait another month or two to find out exactly. December 31st is when they Whether should be released. I hope that they're released in good condition. <laughs> I hope I can use them. I mean, I hope that they're usable data. But yes, I, uh, based on the school board meeting when they released the state level data, there's going to be cautions all over it about looking at them and drawing any conclusions from them whatsoever. They're very nervous about people seeing these numbers. But um, I mean, of course, we're going to see we're going to see problems. And all of a sudden, it's a light bulb has gone off that in-person learning was really important. Like we, we all know, we knew that, but it's been determined that the one thing we should have been working on was in-person learning. It was a lower risk than COVID. So will this be updated I mean, then when those numbers come out? That's the plan, yeah. Right. Our plan is to update it and then take all 
any and all feedback I've gotten and also, you know, tweak for improvements. Thank you for what you've done. Please keep it up. Thank you. Yes. A few minutes ago, um, you were mentioning Missouri was the only state that made it easier. Were you talking about map testing? I, I didn't quite catch what It was the, um, the difficulty of the content standards. How could I find content. out more about that? So let's just say that a third grader is supposed to learn multiplication through 20, the number 20. They might have made it multiplication through the number 10. You know what I mean? Like they made the content. So we have a blog on our, web, on our website. It was written by my colleague James Schulz on this very topic of the, um, uh, and if you shoot me an email, I can connect you to the blog. But um, Essentially, you're saying they lowered the learning standards. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't know, like we've changed the test four times in five years, you know what I mean? So we really are struggling to get any longitudinal data. We have 17, 18 can compare to 18, 19 and that's it. So, and now 2021 is off the, and then we had this whole data vacation. Um, I don't, I don't know. It's going to be a while before we're going to be, you know, I'm in this line of work. So five years from now, I will be able to look back, but it's going to be a while before we'll really be able to understand what happened. But I do think that there will be long-term impact on the children um, la from last year and this year, unless we do something very serious right now. Yes. Um, so you did this report for, show me as a for the parents of the students. Does any the, do any of the statistics, um, will any kind of funding from the state or legislature be impacted uh, in the schools? It has no impact on how much money these schools gather. The, the fact is, the worse a school does for the longer amount of time, it tends to get more resources. So the lowest performing schools tend to attract resources. So we spend more money on those schools to fix them. Um, so no, there's no penalty. Now, of course, if you're a charter school, there's penalty. You have a very limited amount of time to hit your targets or you have to shut your doors, right? So, um, which I can't tell you how many times people will tell me, I wish charter schools were held accountable. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they are. Like the doors will be closed, but we have had some low performing schools. We had a, uh, a not accredited district in the boot heel in Haiti for I think a dozen years and there was no penalty. There's no financial penalty. It's just the opposite of that. So, um, and you know, I think that's a travesty that a child could start kindergarten and go through 12th grade in a district like that. So, um, but again, we just need to get the information out there first. I think about what this <clears throat> person in Virginia, he has some strange name. If you listen to what the parents had to say, the person's on like critical race theory. He's in Virginia. I can't think. He's just one other day. Glenn Youngkin? Yeah. Yeah. Like, how can you all and many others in this room be a part of something like that either? We see countlessly on the news, social media, that parents are being told by the very people they elected to represent them that they can't do X, Y, and Z with their kids, with their schools. So how do we create that with other stakeholders and partners? To, I don't know, I'm showing my age. Well, I mean, funny you should ask. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we did yesterday release a, a parent's bill of rights, basically, which these are all rights that parents already have, right? And we all kind of agree that we have these rights until they start 
being questioned until the a school starts saying, yeah, you can't look at the book list, you can't, uh, you can come in during certain hours. Like, but we have these rights. It's just we felt that it was from a timing point of view, a good idea to write them down and make sure we all agree that these are the rights of parents, right? You get to decide if your child's picture is used in the, in the pamphlet for the school. You get to decide those things. That is already true, but we wrote them down in a Parents' Bill of Rights, and I think you're going to see more talk about these Parents' Bill of Rights. But, um, yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of um, activism on the part of parents, which I think is great. I've always said that if you rile up parents, like tell them you're going to stop the sports program or all they can, like, they get out. They, they show up. And um, I think parents are really showing up and angry about the schools being closed. And that is parents across the income spectrum just upset about the schools being closed and about the weird school year we're having this year. And I know parents are upset about their kids' learning loss and they want tutors. And they, there was an article in the Post-Dispatch that St. Louis parents are paying out of pocket for tutors. That should not be the case. That's now all of a sudden making it even harder for low-income kids to get what they need. Like, parents know that this is a problem and they want the things that they know their kid needs. And in a lot of cases, that's a different school. And so um, I think that it's, to me, a good thing that parents are get, becoming more active. And uh, I think a lot of parents last year realized that the school board chooses curriculum. I don't know if parents really knew that the school, like, I don't know, we use this, uh, you know, interactive math. I don't know where it came from. Well, the school board picked your curriculum. Like, I think parents are learning things about the process that they may not have realized before and the impact it can have. So, and also a lot of parents, you know, sat at the kitchen table and looked at their kid's computer all year. So they learned a lot about what was going on. My cousin used those nice uh, refurbished uh, Google, whatever those things called. Yeah, Chromebooks maybe? watching videos. Oh. I mean, I gotta say, I'm really glad my kids weren't in school last year. I know, it's gotta be hard. So a lot of kids, there's, uh, Missouri's missing 3.5% of its kids. Uh, they're gone. Uh, I do know somebody who was a high school teacher in Kansas City at the beginning of last school year. He was just starting, uh, and he was in a very disadvantaged high school trying to teach algebra too. He couldn't find his students. I mean, like, how are you supposed to find them? So we know that we don't even know the negative impact at this point, I think, so. Yeah. Linda. I think, to piggyback on what you're saying, I think one challenge for parents and the public in general is not understanding how school boards and schools operate and the function and how they can express their voice. They go to a school board meeting and they're overwhelmed by the agenda. And different districts handle the agendas differently. It's almost as if you need a roadmap for parents. Yeah. Explain to them how schools operate. Don't be intimidated. You have the right to speak up. Yep. You have, who do you write if you, in the school district if you have a question? Um, there are such things as curriculum coordinators. Yeah. How that curriculum is adopted in each school district yeah. as a parent. How do, you, how do you get your voice heard and where do you approach it? It can be very intimidating. Yep. But I'd like to piggyback on Yes. Piggyback. There's a good chunk of people that sit back and they're complacent with their school district because they don't feel like they can affect change because they can't control the spend. Yep. Any other course of anything else we do in life, we vote with our dollar. If we don't like the business, we don't shop there. If we can start seeing legislation that lets us pull our dollars out of the public school and put it where we want it to go, the public school has to be accountable. I'm fully, fully in support. <laughs> I'm on the record as fully in support of that idea. I mean, I think you're right. I think that if um, schools weren't given a captive market 
and if they had to actually do the best they could to keep those parents um, like a charter school has to you know what I mean the thing about a charter school is if you don't like it you can just leave right um, and that when you leave you take money and charter schools are well aware of you leaving and taking money right so I, I think you're right uh, I will uh, like preview of a preview is I think I want to move on from this and really look at school finance data and really see how they connect. Now Utah just launched a website, the State Department of Education by the way, that does have performance data and finance data and then cross sections of the two and it's called Project Kids and it's very parent friendly and I think that would be, I'm not sure I understand how all the money comes in and goes out in Missouri and I feel like I would like everyone in the state to understand more about that. You know, almost every survey on school spending, people grossly underestimate. Gro this is uh, 92.47, that's pretty low. Missouri spends about 12 billion, and we have about 900,000 students. So it's about 12,500 per student. And most people think of that as a fancy private school. So um, I just, it's hard to understand if you're spending $12,000 and you've got 20 students in your room, that's $240,000, you're like, well, the teacher's getting 50 or 60, so where's that money going? And I think it would be helpful for people, to your point, Linda, to like just better, better understand the process and where that money goes. Yes? In uh, relation to that, I'm a mom in the Rockwood School District, and we're all going through exactly what we're talking about right now, mm -hmm. figuring out how this works and who's yeah. accountable for what, and it's a confusing process. It really is. So the school board, and I don't mean to disparage, but at this point appears in our district just to be a rubber stamp. So yeah. the committees that recommend things are the ones that are making the decisions, and so we're all trying to get on the committees as well as trying to run for school board. That's right. You know, as well. And then the word curriculum is used all of the time, but I have to say the curriculum doesn't tell you a lot. Nope. And all it has to do is meet, again, sort of that rubber stamp of what these Missouri learning standards are, which I am now appalled to learn that we just keep lowering. But um, the, it's the lesson materials that are used day to day, and the teachers have a lot of autonomy there. They don't. So it, gets, it just gets very confusing. But anyway, I just wanted people to know the rubber stamp factor might be. Yeah, so I have three kids too, and I was pretty interested in their curriculum. Like, a very lonely place to be uh, 20 years ago. But I say interactive math because I really don't like interactive math. But like, I knew who picked the math curriculum, you know what I mean? And I kind of got involved in, this was back in like uh, whole language versus phonics. And you know, there, there's, there's good bad, and bad curriculum. And, and uh, I didn't want to be on a school board. But I did have a, an interest in it. And it, I just don't think people realize, how did that social studies book land in my kid's backpack? You know what I mean? Yep. Someone picked it. And there was a committee. And they looked at different ones. They probably got a sales pitch from a curriculum company. And, and they picked it. And, it makes a difference. So I do see you with your hand up. So yes, go ahead. So first, thank you for what you've done as a Welcome. parent. It has made it helpful. Thank you. I guess the one thing that still makes me cringe is our literacy proficiency rates are so low. Mm -hmm. Why is 60-some percent an A? I, I think you're rewarding schools by saying you get an A at 60-some percent. I mean, that's not an A in any other world. Um, and I know when schools look at that, they're like, hey, I got, we got an A. Still left out for 67% is really high in Missouri. I, I know. I mean, statewide, it's like in the 40s. <laughs> I, I get that, but I guess my concern is still the school looks at that and says, well, we got an A. And I'm like, you're still moving out over 30% of kids. You, know? Yeah, that's right. You, I mean, you're absolutely right. I, I guess my 
the thing that just kills me is the zero percents. There's a bunch of zero percents, you know what I mean? And I verified it and I dug in. I was like, is it really zero percent? There's a bunch in St. Louis that are zero percent. And every child constitutionally uh, has a right to a free and fair public education. I would posit that if you're sending your child to a school with zero percent proficiency, they're not, they're not getting what they are constitutionally required to get. So um, yeah, it's, it's troubling. But you're right, uh, I only could use the range of scores I had. Right, so that's, that's what ends up being an A. I did, but for the record, take out some outlier uh, magnet schools because it just would have pushed all the scores down. But, um, and, I, and, and also attempted to take out everything that's not a regular public school. Now schools themselves have to designate what they are. So no division of youth services, St. Louis P Special School District, uh, juvenile justice system, Missouri School for the Blind, for the Deaf, for the Severely Disabled. I know my colleague Rob has pointed out that something has come through here, but it's like I looked at schools that seemed like they served a high percentage of just students with disabilities. I couldn't confirm, but they did not seem to be a regular school. So I tried to uh, only keep it to what's a regular public school. And charter schools are in here. Yes. So uh, one thing you might want to uh, sort of address that problem. Um, it might be interesting to put Massachusetts is always the highest. As a, you know, yeah. So it would be interesting to see um, if they're sort of held up as the, as, as the best. What a suburban Massachusetts school, what is their um, proficiency rate? Uh, uh, or, or, you know, they have rural areas too. They do. And, um, On the NAEP, they're the highest. Well, at, yeah. at, at, at least it will give you an idea of what is, you know, it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a pretty populated state. It's, it's mm -hmm. what is possible if our state legislature, you know, somehow got serious about education. Um, I mean, uh, so that, yeah. to me would be interesting. Uh, so, yeah, to your point on the NAEP scores and the setting of the standards, um, Massachusetts is usually held up as having some of the highest standards and they raise their standards and uh, even though, I won't even say it, they use Common Core. But anyway, they use Common Core and they stuck with it. So, and their NAEP scores have, have stayed pretty high. But they were sort of Common Core-like before Common Core. And I remember a long time ago saying, here's what a third grade reading question is in Massachusetts and here's what in Mississippi. Massachusetts was like a sentence from a Leo Tolstoy novel. You know what I mean? And Mississippi's was like, you know, very, very basic. So there's a big difference. And when you look at the difference in the test score questions, it is shocking. Um, so we have a lot of work to do there. And yes, I would love for the legislature to get serious. But what I'd like them to do first is do rural report cards with letter grades. But, yes. Uh, actually, kind of a, a double question. Uh, first, uh, could you explain a little more about what you are hoping to do with the legislative district data on here in terms of how you see that actually progressing into something that is meaningful? Um, and then building on uh, questions about um, curriculum, uh, the leeway that teachers have, uh, you know, we all I think probably sort of agree that um, a high quality teacher is the, the most effective thing to having a high quality uh, school or classroom. Um, and there's a lot of variation in Missouri in terms of universities that are doing teacher certification and the quality of those universities. Is there any thought of adding some of that data in 
so you would look and say, okay, well, this school, we've got really low test scores, but we also have a lot of teachers that are coming from this low quality institution that are, you know, not providing high quality teachers. Yeah, so first to the legislative district saying, I just, you know, what DESE puts out for each legislator is the number of districts that touch their district. So the maps are a big jumbled up mess, right? So it'll be like, well, this legislator has schools in eight different districts, and then that's that. So there's no real connection or accountability. So that's why we mapped them into the district. And then we want to, so I've had a legislator, legislator reach out to me and say, hey, can you give me the test scores for all the schools in my district? Well, now they will be able to get all the schools in their district and look at the test scores for all those schools. Now granted, separate school boards, separate superintendents, separate systems, but these are the kids whose parents are voting in the election for them and this is how they're doing. And so I think that most legislators don't know and I think it would be, and I think it's important to put it in front of them so that they know that you know, 54% of the students in their district are below basic in math. What are you doing about it? You know, the average ACT score in your district is a 18.4. What are you doing about it? Um, I, I'm sure they don't know it. And so, and I, and I do want to see it. So I think it could be effective. Secondly, to the teacher issue, yeah, the high quality teacher is the number one thing in the classroom. We just don't know how to make them. You know what I mean? We don't know how to duplicate them, and we uh, sometimes don't know, don't know how to identify them. But we know what you can't identify them on, and that is um, master's degrees. That doesn't work. You know, certification doesn't correlate. SAT scores a little, but I mean, we don't really know. It's like a, you know it when you see it. And the high-quality teachers are less likely to lean on curriculum, right? They're more likely to bring their own stuff into the classroom. Um, but I guess I. So the DESE file, you know, has uh, out-of-field teaching, right? It's got some teacher, it has teachers with masters, teachers years of experience, which um, what you're looking at is sort of a pared-down version of my first vision was all the data on the planet for this school, and we, you know, for user-friendliness and other things, pared it down. But the file that I started with was huge, and I had all that data on here. And I could certainly bring it back, or I have it. I think I've probably sent it to you, <laughs> I think, right? But I think it would be interesting to have a, um, a teacher to, you know, to, ex to explore the teacher part a little bit more. Uh, right now, you know, we have so much talk about teachers in the state. Like, this is where all of our resources are going now, retention and recruitment. And um, so, but I think it's a great point, and, and I will certainly consider it. Thank you, Susan. You're welcome.